The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect official policies or position of the Church of England Pensions Board, any other organisation, employer or their employees. And now, on with the show. Hi there, it's Friday the 12th of March. Join us as we crack open a beer, kick back and start talking responsibly. Welcome to episode three of Talking Responsibly, the Rock and Roller's Guide to Responsible Investment. I'm David Hickey, and joining me is my regular co-host, Adam Matthews. Adam, you've had a big week this week. Yeah, it's been a good week. Um, spring in the air, it's been International Women's Day, and, and we've had the launch of the Net Zero Investment Framework, which uh, has been a really big piece of work. Oh, that sounds like um, that's going to generate lots of chat going forward. So uh, before we move on to that, I think, Adam, I'm going to uh, introduce our special guest for this week. Now, this is a super long intro for someone who has a super impressive CV. So this lady has a BA from Stanford, an MBA from Harvard. She spent 20 years at McKinsey starting in 1994 before becoming a senior partner in 2004. Prior to her current role, she spent six years at the Bank of England as a policymaker and was a member of the Prudential Regulation Committee. And she has since joined BlackRock in May 2020 as Global Head of Investment Stewardship. And he's also a member of the BlackRock Global Executive Committee. And uh, with a CV like that, I think her middle name needs to be hashtag. So I'd like to introduce you to Sandy, hashtag boss. Sandy, good to see you. Hi, David. Hi, Adam. Nice to be here today. I fear the result of that hashtag, but there we have it. Hey, let's, you are, you are a, a spectacular uh, CV um, here, and it's great to, to see you coming into our part of the industry. Um, I already know some of the, the huge impacts you've made at, at BlackRock. Um, super impressive in such a short time. We'll get on to that all through the course of the, um, uh, of the episode. Um, just want to remind you, uh, Sandy, um, that uh, any overly technical language or acronyms that aren't explained will fall foul of the acronym Klaxon. So hopefully that won't fire up this week, but I do have my finger very firmly on the klaxon buzzer. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to hand well, over to... Good, David, the, yeah. the three times it sounded last episode was down to your good self. M mainly uh, down just, to just me, to yeah. So yeah. we're at 3-0 here at the moment. We, we well, are, I am, I we are am very afraid <clears throat> and will attempt to avoid anything resembling an acronym. Well, as, as Adam quite rightly points out, it is most likely myself that is going to fall foul of that. So um, I'm going to set the, uh, the timer going for the gong, and uh, I'm going to flip over to Adam and say, Adam, what is it you wanted to talk about this week? Well, if uh, you're following any of the, 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 the financial press this week, uh, hopefully you've come across some of the coverage around the Net Zero Investment Framework. Um, or acronym NZIF, but I've explained it fairly. Absolutely. And um, really, this has been two years of work um, by a 
group of asset owners and fund managers really trying to sort of work out what does it mean to be net zero for a pension fund, for a fund manager, and how on earth do you do it? And how do you do it credibly? How do you do it practically? What does it mean for you at a sort of at a macro level in terms of all the different asset classes you're invested in? And how, how do you sort of approach it in those stocks in public markets? How do you approach it in your property portfolio or in the the bonds that you have in, in, in governments and and do they sort of add up to a target and how do you set targets? So really it's like a practical way for um, pension funds and fund managers to sort of really engage with this concept of net zero. And obviously everybody's been asked to sort of engage with that because I mean, society has set the goal of the Paris Agreement. We all need to decarbonize one and a half degrees by 2050 or sooner. An, an incredibly difficult task. And you've now got pension funds starting to set targets. And I've always sort of said that the easy part was setting the target. How do you actually do it and get there, the path that you take? And that's the hard bit. And this piece of work, which really has been an effort of collaboration and um, sort of pooling of expertise, has sort of come into the public light this week. It's had a great reception, great endorsement from um, Patricia Espinosa from the UN and also um, Prince Charles and... UK pensions minister, amongst others, and a number of funds have made commitments to use it and to commit to net zero. So it's been a really exciting week, um, but I think this is the beginning. This isn't the the end of the piece of work. This is the beginning. We're, we're learning. Um, the, the framework will evolve. And um, yeah, we're excited to see where this goes. Yeah, Adam, I've, I've been reading through the document. It is a really, really impressive piece of work. Um, it's been uh, clearly written by uh, practitioners and, and those really skilled in in knowing what this is all about. Um, it doesn't have the fingerprints of um, uh, you know those that that are um, minded to simply the environment or you know have that that kind of NGO picture uh, all over it. it. It's definitely a practitioner's piece of work, um, but should hopefully keep the. Uh, the policymakers and the NGOs quite happy that we're doing our job as uh, as investors should. Um, what what's the the feedback you've been getting on it so far, mate? Well, it's it's, it's it seems to have landed really well, and I think as you say, it, it, it's practical, and that that's the sort of challenge when you're sort of dealing with big concepts. Is okay, you can all sort of sign up to that collective endeavor or that common goal. But how do you do it? How do you sort of bring it into reality? How do you get the confidence of trustees? Um, and how do you ultimately communicate that with your own beneficiaries who, in our instance, as a pension fund, that's who we're serving, that's what we're there for. And, and how do we sort of demonstrate to them we're sort of stewarding their assets in a way that sort of works towards these goals that society has set and that we're doing our part. And, and for me, it's a real key part of the investment architecture. I've got to be honest, I've been ably helped in the whole endeavor um, by my sort of co-chair in that, which has been um, APG on behalf of APP, so one of the largest pension funds in, in Europe, um, and also a sort of great group of um, asset owners and fund managers. And, and one of the good things is it's gone it's gone global. So initially this sort of started as a European endeavor, and now we've got all the regional investor networks in the US, in Australia, in Asia have come on board and, and going to sort of take it forward. And I do say, I think it, it will evolve. It will continue to sort of grow as a framework. And as our understanding grows of how you deal with the complexities on, on, on these issues, we'll, we'll develop it. So I'm excited. I think this is a really, really important foundational moment for responsible investment. Yeah, David, if I could jump in, yeah, I mean, we, we, of course, commented on this, you know, like everyone in the industry, but 
it is an unbelievably practical guide. I mean, I look at it and I just think it's a to-do list for what we need to do as managers, you know, all over the world. And what was amazing about it is sometimes it's difficult because you know, I sit in, in the UK and we have one perspective on issues here, but then as a global firm, it can be so difficult to implement things. And what's, what I thought fantastic about the framework is that at every step of the way, it really acknowledges you know, multiple approaches, different manager positions, you know, how to engage collectively or independently, how to, I mean, there's a box, which I, I love the box, which was, it's really hard to do measurement. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it, it, it's true. You know, we're all in the situation where we're trying to size, you know, how many emissions, what's our alignment, the methodologies are still kind of rubbish and, you know, we're getting there. But I just, I really love that, that um, doability, the ability to apply it, which for a firm as big as BlackRock, that's a big statement that we can use this um, in our daily work. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting that this has come out now. Um, when you put that to the counterpart of, of uh, Larry's letter, um, when it came out in, uh, was it January or January thereabouts? Um, the, the, the messages are, are very, very similar and, and, and quite compatible um and i think in that uh larry's letter you, you know and and the the calls we had afterwards you know we were discussing that you know how difficult measurement is and where the the gaps are um now i i think one of the one of the really great things about this uh piece of work is that it's a public good um you know it's available to just go and download from the uh institutional investor group on climate change or iigcc website which is iigcc.org if i remember rightly um so anyone can go along and download it and use it um which is fantastic because we really need these these public goods um so it's just one of the the the, the parts of the puzzle you know the tpi measurement and data that's another part of the puzzle um what um oh, i'm going to uh, PCAF, PCAF, um, which is the, uh, I can't even remember what PCAF stands you for. You advanced klaxoning yourself. I know, I know. Yeah, because, it's because I can't remember what PCAF um, exactly stands for, but their standards on how to measure um, measure different uh, carbon footprints and carbon intensities across different asset classes, all these different pieces coming together. Um, but uh, what we need is is kind of public goods, uh, I guess, um, and, and less things behind paywalls. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm just, I, I mean, I'd love to hear what what, what you think on this, Sandy, because I, I mean, I, I mean, the fear that we had when we sort of started it was that, yeah, we can all make the, the, the commitment, but if we start developing a way of delivering on that commitment that another pension fund or another fund manager does that's different, then how do these things add up? And, and how do I know that, a fund in the US or a manager that's sort of working with a fund in the US or a fund in the UK or in Europe, how, how these things are sort of going to be in, in a common format that actually we're all sort of driving change in the real economy, that it's actually having that sort of impact that we think it is. And if we all go at it differently, then that's that to me risks a complete mess. And I think this is one way of creating that common, common sort of set of practical rules or whatever and we'll see how it evolves but I, and I think the main thing though is that there's a lot of information there that I think um, gives you confidence to start getting on with it and hopefully that's helpful but I'd love to hear what you think Thomas Sunny, in terms of how you see that landscape. I think I think that's right I mean one of the most valuable things I found in the framework is the concept of how a company transitions from 
um, I mean, it's like the 12 stages of a, of a you know, AA program from, you know, sort of climate, climate um, disinterested through to, you know, truly Paris aligned and laying out the stages. It's exactly the way that we've been thinking about as we work with companies in different regions, you know, it acknowledges that there should be different pathways by sector, there should be different pathways by region and thinking about you know, where is this company that one is engaging with like on that journey? I think that common language is unbelievably helpful for all investors. Um, you know, I also think for us, you know, all talking about TCFD, that's really helpful and really important. It's a standard that people recognize. Um, the other thing that I thought about as I looked at this is, you know, there was a stage in this discussion like a year ago, which was, should we be measuring carbon emissions of the portfolio or no, we should be measuring temperature alignment and increasingly we're of a view that we should be doing both. You know, we need to be able to translate. There are different reasons why you use different things. You know, PCAF is a, and you know, you can buzz me if you want. I can't remember what it, be, it is either. Although oh, I think it's on. carbon. It, that sub gap. Come on, that word is sub yeah. no, we, we're, we're gonna look it up in the, uh, in the break while Rory's doing the book. And we're going to well, come we're back. We're using on it, PCAF, so I can yeah. tell you, you know, when we're <laughs> thinking about our scope three emissions, which we've said we put out, we'll use PCAF because we need to have a methodology that's agreed for finance emissions. That's a really great methodology. When we're then thinking about making new products, we need to have a methodology that's temperature alignment and measuring, you know, how is your portfolio moving toward um, that, you know, one point five degree world and you know, we need to translate between them because the same portfolio, it's the same companies and you don't want to be, you know, um, in, in a way, you don't want an arg between one version and another. You want it all to kind of align and make sense together. So hopefully we'll find, um, you know, translation mechanisms to do that. But I don't think it's just one way of thinking about it. I, th I think we've discussed on the, the podcast in previous episodes about some of the problems around things like temperature alignment. And we've got all sorts of problems around, you know, data and measurement. Um, and as you said, that's that's not a reason not to do it. It's just uh, we need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, there are issues around scope three. There are issues around how you get to a temperature alignment. There are issues around, you know, whose uh, scenario analysis you're using and what's going into that. Do you really know what's going into that or not? Um, and what's the background of those? But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It just means that as investors, we have to be cognizant of where the issues are. Because it's the same as with any other you know, set of financial data. It's, it's all got its potential problematic areas. And the uh, environmental, social and governance or ESG pillars are just three different pillars of investment risk. Um, so, yeah, uh, Adam. Yeah, no, I, th I mean, on, on the temperature alignment, I mean, we... I mean, I'm not opposed to that. I think in, in due course, um, and I think that's something that we can recognise is is something where we want to get to. Can we get there now? I suspect it's too soon. I think it's premature, but it doesn't mean to say that that shouldn't necessarily be an objective in due course. I, I think that there are there there's sort of challenges in sort of flipping to that. I mean, I but then again, I sort of we're all aiming for a temperature alignment of 1.5 degrees. So, um, but I, I slightly get concerned at the sort of notion that major standard setters like TCFD are looking to do that at this point. Um, I think in time, um, I and I think there's work to be done across the industry to get there. So hopefully, hopefully we can get to that point. But at this point, I've got reservations, which we sort of expressed somewhere else, but uh, we'll see where we get to. Well, one of the things that I think is really important as we think about this as investment managers and investment owners, asset owners, is thinking about the companies and, you know, their perspective, right? So 
this is a very difficult world. If I'm if I'm you know producing my financial statements, I have you know a, a formal methodology. I have auditors who go through everything with fine tooth comb, and I also have often legal liability if I do it wrong. And asking corporates now to move into a world where they're um, disclosing numbers that are hard to measure, the methodologies are not entirely clear. You know, I do think that we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the, the, the good direction of travel. And so I think as much as you know, we as investors are, are sensitive to that, but also it's an important issue for regulators as well. So one of the things, you know, when we talk to regulators about you know, the way forward, we really try to encourage as, as regulators ask for things like TCFD, other disclosures, the more that they acknowledge you know, the need for some kind of a safe harbor, some type of recognition that you know, this is not the kind of thing you can put into a Sarbanes-Oxley regime tomorrow, but over time, hopefully it'll get easier. But I think we want the corporates to be you know, managing their direction in the real economy, doing what's gonna add value to their businesses, you know, create long-term values for their shareholders, going after opportunities and sharing with us, you know, as, as uh, David said, you know, the environmental pillar, the social pillar, the governance pillar, the metrics that we need, that's much easier for them if they are operating in a world that isn't a gotcha sort of a regime. It's particularly an issue in the US. Yeah, no, I mean, look, that, that's that's fair comment. And having sort of led climate action engagement with, with companies, I know we're asking them for, for targets and we're asking them for demonstration alignment and we should be applying the same principles to ourselves. And, but it, I mean, it really doesn't, it sort of, the dynamic changes now, I, I think, really, when when you're at the table with companies and you, you yourself have made a commitment, you you both share that common objective, yeah. and and if you can be assured of the other's determination to get there, then then I think your sort of relationship changes, but also you have now a responsibility in terms of your own accountability to the emissions of of that company that you want to continue to hold if it's transitioning from a hard to abate sector. Um, so look, I, I'm I'm. I'm open to, from personal view, um, just the sort of the temperature alignment, but I still think we've got some important steps to go through first uh, across the industry um, to get to that point, for that to be effective and to do what I think you want it to do. And I, I think we can get there. But I, I mean, I just, as I say, I think this this week, this was a key piece of the jigsaw um, of the, the investment community's contribution to how we start to move towards net zero. I think it really firmly puts us at, at, at the table and it starts moving us into yes, really delivering on these commitments in a meaningful way. Oh, that's the pre-gong before the main gong. That's Jared with the gong there. So that's that's the time up for uh, for that section. Uh, you probably might be able to hear my dog going mad in the background, so I do apologise for that. For anyone listening from the future, from our point of view, uh, we're still in COVID times here, so we're all recording from home and uh, expect to hear all the background things uh, you would. Uh, hopefully, from whatever time point you're listening from, uh, everything's back to normal and this is all uh, a, a memory, uh, distantly forgotten. Um, right, so thank you very much for that. Super interesting stuff. Uh, I'm sure we'll be touching on those issues over and over again on the podcast in the future. Now we're going to move over to uh, Rory Sullivan uh, and his um, book of the week. Welcome to Book of the Week with Rory Sullivan.
This week's book of the week is Keane, the autobiography. Um, the autobiography of the infamous Roy Keane, the Irish footballer. Now, Roy Keane and Rennie Descartes may seem like unlikely bed- bedfellows. One, an Irish footballer who, um, for whom divisive could well have been his, mis- mi- his middle name. Uh, the other, a uh, French philosopher, mathematician and general intellectual. Um, why do I raise Descartes in the context of a sporting autobiography? It's because of one of Descartes' adages, know thyself. Roy Keane's autobiography um, certainly suggests a high level of self-awareness. Like every um, every good student of psychology, he, he, he understands what he is. He talks about his competitiveness, his drive to win. Um, he also acknowledges how those have shaped and informed his career as a player. He is certainly self-aware. Um, and as I, I think those of us who've indulged in in self-reflection and um, various talking cures over the years will we'll certainly acknowledge that um, self-awareness is an important facet of modern life. But what what also emerges through his book, and you could in fact um, has characterized his career as a whole, has also been his self-absorption. You know, spending time reflecting on who one is and what one is tends perhaps to distract one from the realities of living. Um, the thing that's, that struck me most about Keane's autobiography was how little understanding he shows or acknowledgement he has of his effect on others. Um, you know, it's pretty much like saying, oh, I'm very bad tempered, but you've got to live with it. Um, now, that's that's interesting because you know, when you look at Roy Keane's career, you would say he was a very successful player because those attributes allowed him to perform on the pitch in a particular way. I would also respectfully suggest, and um, I didn't say this if he's, ever, if he's in the room with you, David, but I would also suggest his career as a manager has been a failure for exactly the same reasons. You know, having such an attitude when you're dealing with, I guess, young men, men who are perhaps intimidated by you um, or who look, look up to you is not a way to get the, mo- the best out of them. Um, so I suppose my view is, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're not interested in sport, man, you might not care. But I think for all of us, it, it, it points to the importance of not just thinking about ourselves as individuals, but thinking about ourselves as, as um, members of society. I mean, I, I might paraphrase this. Um, is there a reason why Roy Keane will never be a great manager? Um, the answer is yes, and he should read his book and find out. Now, for those of you who are not of a, of a sporting sporting ilk or, or for whom um, my obsession with sport is, is, is perhaps too much, I'd like to offer another book which where I had exactly the same, same reaction. And it was um, Anna Bowden's book called Banking on It. Um, Anna Bowden is the founder of Starling Bank, one of the successful upstart banks in the UK. There is a fantastic description in the book about halfway through about how her co-founders tried to get rid of her. You know, she 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 was the one who was leading the charge to set up this bank. And there's a moment when her whole management team basically told her they wanted her to get out and did everything they could to to get rid of her. Now, she she clung on. Um, the the bank has been very successful. What is striking in the book is, again, it's exactly the same thing as the Keen book. She describes who she is. She seems aware of her strengths and her ambition and her drive. She seems to have no acknowledgement of her effect on the people around her. Um, I would 
describe her book as as she was successful despite herself. But I think for the um, distinguished listeners to this podcast, I would say don't just spend time understanding yourself and your own personality. Um, spend an equal amount of time in understanding how your personality and your characteristics characteristics impact on the people around you without that knowledge um i think your career could well be destined for for more failure less success than perhaps you would otherwise deserve great that was another very entertaining book review from uh, rory thanks for that i'm not entirely Sure, I'm going to rush out and read the Roy Keane autobiography, to be honest, but you have sold it to me well, and I'm half thinking about it now. Uh, is it, have either of you read uh, Roy Keane's autobiography yet? I have not. Sorry, what, what, what's Roy Keane? Sorry, yeah, he, he's yeah, that other that, team that, that play in red. I've not heard of him. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, well, um, moving swiftly on, uh, I'm going to turn to Sandy now and say, Sandy, what has been on your mind this week? What would you like to bring to the conversation? Sure. Well, David, you know, what I'd love to do is talk about corporate engagement. So, you know, we, in the earlier part of the session, we were talking about the net zero investment framework, the ZIF. And uh, am I allowed to say Nazif altogether like that if I've identified it? Yeah, no, you're, you're okay now. You're, you're all right. Okay, and we've excellent. also got, actually, we've also got PCAF, who is the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. So there that's for anyone okay, that was got, scratching their heads. We got many of the, many of the letters. Um, but so, so the thing that I'd love to talk about is, is corporate engagement. So a big part of... And the new framework is about how companies and you know, owners and, and managers engage with the companies that we're invested in. And you know, it's it's sometimes people think of it as very mysterious and and behind closed doors. And I know we get frustrated that there are constituents in the world who think that the only thing that stewardship involves is voting on shareholder proposals and nothing else happens. And I think, you know, Adam, David, you're both really involved in this ecosystem. You understand how this world works, but you know, we operate in a really different way. So BlackRock has you know, a big engagement force and we're in you know, eight different countries and going out to you know, 40 different um, other countries you know, to do our engagement work. And we tend to do that on our own, but we try to do it around public principles, you know, so pursuing common standards. You have a collective engagement model, which is, as we saw this week, amazingly effective in terms of some of the events that I know, Adam, uh, you may have been involved in, or David, you may have been involved in. Um, I just love to kind of compare and contrast, you know, how you do it, how we do it, how those efforts are you know, often compatible. Um, and, and maybe go to Adam first and just, you know, you're a, you're a leader in this world of company by company, you know, seeking change. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I mean, first of all, great subject because obviously um, we, we're all immersed in this one and, and actually this is going to be crucial to whether society achieves its objectives and we can steward our funds in a way that means our, our sort of ultimate beneficiaries aren't impacted by the downside on, on, on climate change and the opportunity, the, the enormous upside that there's going to be as well. And I yeah, I, I mean, I recognise the description and, and I sort of recognise the the challenge. I mean, some engagement has to be done behind closed doors and, and how do you carry 
not only your own sort of fund and your own <clears throat> stakeholders with you, but how do you carry the wider investment community if you're the sort of the 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 sort of tip of the the wider investment group that you're engaging? I mean, I've had to sign non-disclosure agreement agreements to undertake engagement and you do that because you are in a process and a dialogue which needs to have an insight in terms of where the company's really going to sort of try to make the changes that you're asking. And and I, I think the other challenge is sort of understanding the timeframes. And I, I think there's a there's a there's a real issue at the moment in terms of some of the perfection that people are expecting in terms of where companies have got to come out with basically multi-decadal transition plans. And people want all the information now. And I, and I get the urgency. I mean, if, if we had John Houchin here from the Swedish pension funds, he'll be saying, well, Greta Thunberg lives down the road and she's off, she's she's leading a movement that's representative of where the youth is at. And obviously that's absolutely relevant. You've got to carry that. But at the same time, you've also got to sort of appreciate that challenge with companies in deeply complex transitions. And it's a judgment about what what is sufficient at this point, what is sort of indicative of a direction they're going. And then have you got sufficient confidence that there's really the intentionality there with the company? And, and that, they, those are all, all of those are judgment calls. You need your independent tools. And, and I think one of the things that, I, I mean, we've challenged BlackRock on before and others is, is sort of however big you are, there are issues that have got to be done collectively. And I just don't think any one fund is going to have the influence necessary on an issue like climate change. And that's why it's brilliant that you joined Climate Action 100 um, but also what, what are individual sort of theory of change and how do you drive the sort of change you need, acknowledging who you respectively are and, and the sort of size and influence that you also have. And, and I, so, so I share a lot of the, the, your observations there. I do think climate is a collective endeavor, that there's no way we're gonna do this without all of us pulling in the same direction using common frameworks and then adding additionally on top of that what we can bring to the party. And I think that's really where, where sort of initiatives like Climate Action 100 have got us to. I think, I think it's interesting because you're almost talking about a, a them and us thing with the, us of the asset owners and, and BlackRock. But, you know, to some extent, BlackRock is us because, you know, I think it's very difficult to be in the financial market, especially as an asset owner, without having some connection somewhere to BlackRock. I and mean, it pretty much everyone has a BlackRock fund or a BlackRock relationship in place. So it's actually, uh, you know, recognizing that fact that this is a, a two-way process. And I think there has been, you know, issues not only with BlackRock, with the other asset managers in the past. And I'm seeing a real change in attitude towards how that's uh, working. And like you say, with the, with the move to Climate Action 100, um, and, and, you know, I, I was involved in that a little bit. Um, you know, we've seen that influence uh, change. So it's that collective stewardship thing. It's it's between the asset owners and the investment managers, as well as between the managers and and the companies. And one of the things that um, I really focused on when I joined the firm, you know, we had made this commitment in January 2020 that we needed to really focus on climate risk, sustainability risk more broadly. And I looked at, you know, how do we need to adapt what we're doing? And, you know, part of that was listening to clients. So I spent an enormous amount of time with asset owners because ultimately it's not our money, right? We only manage off balance sheet for asset owners. And so it was incredibly important to figure out if, if it's your retirees and your beneficiaries' futures, 
what do we need to be doing to be safeguarding that? And then the interesting question you know, for me was, what can we do that other people can't do? What can be our unique, you know, unique value add? And so when we can, um, really trying to forge that. So for example, one of the places we've been really active with Climate Action 100 is in Asia. So we, do, we have 15 people on our stewardship team. Actually, by now it's 17, and I think it'll be 20 in a couple of, of, uh, of months because we do have a big footprint there, much bigger than most managers um, in you know, the US or in Europe. And it's really important to us to know the companies that we're investing in. And you know, often we even get there like before the proxy advisor and say, excuse me, you know, you've just recommended a related party transaction for a purchase of a coal plant that is valued at 1.3 market. What universe would that make sense? You know, <laughs> like even in China, where this particular example was, that's not a good deal for investors because this isn't what's going to happen. The transition is occurring. And it's really interesting being able to pull forward those conversations. And we're seeing unbelievable progress. So even though we don't, you know, we, we, you know, we represent one Climate Action 100 engagement because it's in a country where we can do that. But then, you know, being able to kind of behind the scenes, just share what we know about some of the focus companies, push that narrative and Frankly, what we're finding in Asia is so many companies are saying, I just got hit by a net zero 2050 or in China's case, 2060 target. What do I need to do? You know, so there's this incredible response of, I get that my company has to move toward that transition. You know, I see that I'm about to buy a stranded asset. You know, should I be changing? What are other people doing? It's amazing. I mean, Korea is just on fire in terms of how fast they've been moving on sustainability commitments. So I'm, I'm really heartened by you know, being able to get into places that maybe other investors aren't. Um, but anyway, I mean, Adam, oh, back to you, your hands yeah, well, up. I, I mean, I think, look, <clears throat> I mean, that's the point of a collective endeavor, isn't it? I, I mean, you, you've got a breadth and a reach that many other funds don't have. Um, and I, I think that's part of what you bring to the party and that you're pushing at that collective goal of, of the targets of like Climate Action 100. And that's why you coming into that was so important, particularly amongst a lot of the, the sort of the major asset owners who wanted to see that there was that shared commitment from BlackRock. And so I think that was really welcome and a big step. I suppose the part of the challenge is sort of <clears throat> how, how you sort of really drive and maximize that, that position that you've got, um, which is greater than many others. And, and the theory of change you have as a, as a, as a fund in, in that context. And I mean, I, you, you referenced the size of the, the sort of stewardship team, but mine's a quarter of your size and I'm a three billion fund. And I just sort of think we're all in this process where we need to scale according to the contribution. And, and I know you're on a sort of path of, of, of taking BlackRock down, down, down that route. So I look forward to that. But my, my, my sense is in terms of where we're getting to in the engagement, you've got companies that sort of are in the headlights, as you were describing, particularly in regions where like Asia, suddenly you've seen a sort of that net zero commitment of a country thrust upon it. And that is going to fundamentally challenge the direction of, of a company that currently was sort of in absence of that, that new commitment. Um, you've got companies that are really engaged in trying to sort of grapple with, okay, we're now trying to sort of move forward and give another further indication of we're, we're moving on this path and we're, we're setting targets, we're now developing the plan. And then you've got companies resisting 
Mm-hmm. And I suppose mm-hmm. where is it? When is it that we have to make the judgment that actually that company is simply resisting, and that challenges us to remain in that company? And we either need to change the directors, or actually it's going to be hard for us to legitimately hold that company because it is a clear, identifiable risk. And I, I think we're sort of moving there on 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 the sort of the, the collective endeavour and understanding. And the Climate Action 100 benchmark that comes out in a couple of weeks, I think is going to be a hugely important contribution to understanding some of this. I mean, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, there's two things that are incredibly important for, I think, all um, asset owners and managers to be thinking about. And one is, if we do find those companies that are behind the pace and we are spending time with them and assessing them and recognizing it, then we really need to think about how much of that should be engagement, how much of it should be voting. And that's where we are voting more against directors when we see that the company is not yet doing you know, what we think you know, they ought to be doing at this point. And that's something we'll do a lot more this year. And I, I've been hearing more from other investors, other voters, that that's something that they're looking at. And I do think that's really important you know, because shareholder proposals are very hard work. They're very intense work. They don't go to all the companies that, you know, in, in some markets you can't even use them. So I do think that's important. I think the other interesting question that you raise is how does the risk of not managing climate risk effectively weigh into the decision by active managers around holding a company? And you know, we announced this um, new heightened scrutiny model, and it's essentially taking into the equation, the risk return equation, how that company is responding to climate change if it's a really carbon intensive company. And you know, I think it'll get harder and harder for active managers to say, I love the financial upside of this company and its climate plans are pointing it on a trajectory that more and more people are fighting away or running away from. You know, because there is this, I mean, David mentioned it earlier, there is a dynamic we're seeing around money moving. And from our perspective, the money is moving incredibly fast you know, so many funds, so many products are seeking new new ways to allow invest asset owners to shift funds. So I think it's going to get harder and harder for the companies who aren't responding, who aren't keeping up, you know, to keep their investors happy. The cost of capital goes up on the margin. You know, even if you're in a in an index and your valuation's going down relative to others in the index, that's an inexorable trend where you will find less and less capital going in your direction. So I, I do think this is, um, it's a really pivotal, probably couple of years right now and moving fast. Do you, I mean, in, in the, I mean, we're talking very much as sort of equity investors here, um, but do you see much more sort of need for us to align with how we're also interacting with companies' debt? And, and I, I sort of think that also goes back, we, we've also been partly responding to a sort of like a divestment movement as well that sort of wants you to sell your holdings. And Hickey's always been saying, well, look, this is nuts, actually, hold, keep your shares, but divest your debt, deny the debt and be public about it, because actually that's the bit that you're actually impacting genuinely on the company. If they're, if they're asking for finance for things that is setting them in the wrong direction, that's where we need to be asking for the pullback. And and, do, and at the moment, so the initiative climate action is very much a sort of as shareholders. Um, but do you see yeah. a need for us to sort of bring these two aspects much closer into alignment? I mean, I think, I think we are going in that direction. I guess my first point would be that bank lending is the key here. 
And the biggest trigger um, for change is going to be central bank climate stress testing. So coming back to my old world, what we are hearing increasingly is you know, the pressure that banks are under, both from their equity investors, but also from their regulators to show resilient climate scenarios. That is going to be the biggest issue. And it's interesting, my old shop back in the day when I was at McKinsey, um, what I hear is that they are getting a lot of worried calls from really carbon intensive companies right now. And they're not actually complaining about their equity investors. They're actually quite concerned about their access to debt capital. Because you know, if you think about it, um, unsecured debt, three-year term, you refi in two, like that moves really quickly. People don't term out on average much beyond sort of a three-year duration, you know, for, for, for generalized corporate um, debt. So, so yeah, I think, I think that this is going to be um, an important point. Two, two, two possible metrics. One is the banks are actually being asked about financed emissions, including uh, um, doing a bond offering. So there is a role for you know I have finance that that will matter. But then I think the other thing um, to your point is what should we be doing as holders of debt? And I know, I mean, at BlackRock now, all of our active funds, so it's like 5,600 funds have integrated ESG into how I manage. And so what that means increasingly, I think on the corporate debt side is that they are looking at the full consideration set at the funding point and it's not just how is this thing going to trade now, but how is this thing going to trade over you know, time? And to the extent that there is going to be um, you know, an impediment to demand associated with you know, unattractive carbon intensity, that will matter. And by the way, the minute that we do our scope three emissions, and we, we're setting a goal very soon for how temperature aligned our portfolios will be, that immediately then takes us to the point of, well, gosh, I am not indifferent between these two equally rated, equally yielding bonds. I frankly greatly prefer the one that is less carbon intensive at the moment of funding. And I think that's, that is going to matter. It really, it really is an important trend. I think there's another more complicated issue. Sorry, I keep talking, but there's a more complicated issue about so-called debt stewardship. And you know, we don't have obviously the voting aspect. There's the funding aspect. I think there's the corporate engagement, which can be really valuable and active, but um, there's work to be done on how we link all that together other than acknowledging that we do a lot of engagement with a corporate who happens also to be a, a, a debt, debt um, a, um, a borrower you know, and we're holding their debt. I mean, I think that's that. That's the point. I think first, first and foremost, it's the acknowledgement that we, we're starting to look at both aspects, both as a sort of as an equity holder, as a as a bond holder. We're starting to look at your transition plans as you bring them forward in hard to abate sectors, with with a sort of common lens. And I think that sort of speaks to the need of things like climate action, one hundred benchmark, etc. And and I think the more that we start to sort of evolve that common lens and that sort of common approach, I think that will filter through. Um, but it's yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that we we need to link this in a much more sort of structured way. Um, and I, but also because as as a fund, it is we we sort of recognise it's perfectly possible to be in a high carbon company that's wanted to transition, and it's perfectly legitimate to be in a steel company that's got a credible plan, and it's perfectly possible, and I think needs to be legitimised to provide transition finance to help that company transition if you've got the confidence that their goals are stacking up. And that's where we need to get to. 
And that's where I think the sort of the equity engagement can actually unlock the path for the transition finance that you can also provide. And that's where I think if we can work this a bit more, there's a real positive incentive there for companies that are making the commitments in response to engagement. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, financing the transition is absolutely vital. The companies who are, I mean, look, the, the, the economy is carbon intensive right now. There is no question. And all of the investment money cannot fit into the lovely and delightful pure green investments that some people would ask all managers and all asset owners you know, to go. We would have an enormous exploding bubble, but what we wouldn't have is the trillions of investment that needs to be made in the new technology in the new infrastructure you know there's so you know dealing with you know electricity intermittency storage you know carbon capture hydrogen fuel like these things need financing and they sound lovely and green but often the companies that are going to make those investments are themselves companies going through transitions and i think that is unbelievably important for all of us to remember um yeah we can't we can't just sort of rush off to pure green as, as a magic happy place and ignore you know, the, the state of the world and what needs to, what needs to happen. Oh. So I've been holding, uh, I've been holding Jared back from uh, ringing the gong, um, but uh, I need to think about the, the length of the podcast could quite happily have gone for another half hour there. So I, I just realized that I would just sat back, listen to you guys as though I was a listener of the podcast rather than a host of the podcast. I found that absolutely fascinating. You were great, in your own magic house. I was, I was just, I was just loving it. I was absolutely loving it. So yeah, thanks very much for that. And I think Sandy, uh, you clearly got some great points there on financing the transition. I'm, you know, I've been speaking to various people in different parts of the uh, investment value chain about how that might happen. So uh, I'm sure that we'll speak in, at some point about what new products BlackRock needs to bring to market so that we as asset owners can uh, can help finance that because there is a great want for real impactful products in that space. And uh, I look forward to, to BlackRock and uh, other investment management houses are also available, uh, as they would say on the BBC. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to everyone having fantastic products that we can buy and let's get this moving. So I'm going to wind everything up there and I'm going to thank you uh, very much uh, for uh, appearing today. Adam, thank you very much. Uh, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Sandy, so appreciative of you giving your time for this. Uh, where can our listeners find you? Uh, probably the best would be LinkedIn. I have to admit, I am not a Twitterati. So LinkedIn, I am findable. Good. In fact, I may be wearing this dress on LinkedIn. <laughs> okay, so LinkedIn and it's uh, Sandra or Sandy? Uh, yes, Sandra Boss. I was named Sandra Boss. In fact, I'm called Sandra's iPad on this, even okay. though I get confused when I'm called that in person. So yes, okay. Sandra Boss. No so, hashtag in the middle. No hashtag. Well, I have to change that. Sandra Sandra Boss on LinkedIn. Absolutely fabulous to, uh, to have you on. Uh, so to the listeners out there, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, thanks for staying with us so far. We've got some great guests lined up for you in the future, and we're planning on uh, continuing our uh, streak of uh, fantastic female leaders uh, appearing as guests on the show. Uh, so please recommend it to your friends. Uh, subscribe on iTunes, on Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you like that, um, give us a little review, a five-star rating. It's all very, very uh, appreciated. So with that, I will leave you there, and I look forward to getting back in touch with you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.